Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm your host, Fred Dews. My conversation today, just in time for going back to school, is with an expert on community colleges. Also stay tuned for Governance Studies fellow John Hudak's take on what's happening in Congress. My guest today is Adela Solis. She is a fellow in the Brown Center on Education Policy here at Brookings and an expert on the economics of higher education with a focus on policies affecting community colleges. Welcome to the show, Adele. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, you are brand new to Brookings. When did you start? I started on July 1st, so I'm just over a month here. So you are one of the newest staffers, newest scholars in the oldest policy center at Brookings. Brown Center, I believe, dates back to 1993. Hmm, I didn't know that. Even before my time. So welcome, uh, and I'm glad you're here. Tell me a little bit about your background, where you've been, and and how you came to be at Brooklyn. Sure. So I'm just finishing up my doctorate at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, so I have to defend at the beginning of October. And before that, I was in New York City. I was working at Kingsborough Community College. Before that, I was in Latin America, and that's kind of how I started to be interested in working with adults. I got a job teaching English at a small private college, which is, you know, typical for an American who goes to foreign country. Um, And I just really loved working with that population. So then when I was back in New York, I worked with um, a lot of the immigrant communities, worked for some nonprofits in Manhattan and Brooklyn. Um, And then it was just kind of a natural step to end up uh, working at a community college. And you went to Reed College in Portland, Oregon for your bachelor's degree. Are you from the West Coast? I'm from the Southwest. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Okay. Okay. It's a lovely, lovely city. Uh, I enjoyed the balloon fiesta there many years ago with my wife and some friends. The balloon fiesta is great. So uh, you just mentioned uh, a little bit about how you got interested in the topic of community colleges and your work with immigrants. Are a lot of the people who go to community colleges from immigrant backgrounds? Um, I could not give you an actual statistic on that. And of course, it would vary a ton by the location. So at Kingsborough Community College uh, in Brooklyn, there was a large immigrant population. But I'm sure, you know, um, at Cuyahoga Community College in Ohio, maybe that's not the case. Let's talk a little bit about demographics of community colleges, some data. Uh, I, I discovered that there are maybe a thousand community colleges in this country. Most of them are public. There's even 35 tribal community colleges. What can you say about uh, sort of who goes to the community colleges in terms of their demographics, maybe their socioeconomics, the numbers? Sure. Community colleges do enroll disproportionately um, low-income students and students of color. People like to cite the statistic that um, almost half of undergraduates in the United States start at a community college. It's almost exactly half of students enrolled in public higher education. There is a myth uh, that community colleges are, or students are there mostly for vocational reasons. But I mean, I think we're seeing more and more that a lot of the students are going to four-year colleges to complete their degrees. Is that the case? I probably wouldn't say that more students are going to four-year colleges, but there is historically this tension in community colleges between um, whether they are sort of traditional academic institutions preparing students to go on to four-year institutions or whether they should be more focused on workforce development and vocational education. Every conversation that I've had so far as a Brookings scholar related to workforce development at community colleges, um, that always comes up. I will say from my own history, my own 
perception of community colleges goes way back in time to long before the, even the Brown Center was founded, is uh, as a community college was a place where uh, maybe older adults went to take a few classes, maybe where people who couldn't go to a, a full four-year college would go. But at the same time, uh, I was very proud of the fact that my mom taught at a community college. She taught ESL for many years uh, and developed a very a good network of, of friends. And also my two nephews, they live out in Arizona, one of them went to community college out in Arizona near Phoenix for two years, and then he transferred to a four-year. The other one is going to finish his second year at community college, and he's also going to transfer to a four-year. So it does seem like more and more uh, it's an alternative way to start getting a higher education. Right. I mean, it certainly has that potential. Having worked at a community college for a long time myself, um, I'm definitely an advocate of them. But the research shows that many students get sort of um, lost at community colleges. Maybe the fact that community colleges have two missions ends up being problematic. Scholars at the Community College Research Center have written some papers suggesting that all of these options, I mean, that goes with uh, behavioral economics concepts as well, that too many choices actually stymies students and prevents them from um, obtaining their goals. Another statistic that's often cited is a 2008 report using uh, beginning post-secondary uh, survey data showed that 81% of students, when they enroll in a community college, they say that they intend to transfer to a four-year institution. But recent data suggests that only about 24% of students who started a community college do end up transferring to a four-year institution. Is that what you mean by uh, they're lost sometimes or are there other factors that would suggest Right. That? I mean, I think some people would say that there's a lot of measurement error in those upon enrollment questions, you know. So just because a student sits down when they fill out their first form and says that they intend to go to a four-year, there could be a ton of different reasons that they're doing that that aren't just that they want to transfer to a four-year, they understand what that means. So it's possible that that 81% is very exaggerated. Uh, but the big difference between 24% and 81% suggests that um, something is going wrong, you know, that some students aren't able to persist or aren't able to navigate the pathway from the two-year to the four-year. Or, um, you know, there could be problems with the four years on the receiving ends, you know, many states have policies that um, are intended to uh, force four years to admit students who complete a certain number of credits or who complete an associate's degree um, at the tier institution. Um, but maybe not all those four-year institutions honor those agreements, or maybe they don't have the capacity to honor those agreements always. It seems to me that it would be relatively straightforward to, to go to a two-year institution to complete your associate's degree, and maybe you've got a bunch of 101-type courses in economics or history or literature, and then just transfer those credits right to a four-year for your final two years. So you're, you're saying that's not the case. Right. So one thing is that um, your average community college student isn't just sort of entering and taking those 101 courses. They might be placed into remediation, for example. And some evidence suggests that some students get sort of stuck in remediation. You know, they're placed into a long enough sequence of remedial courses that they give up or they just can't seem to make it past the exit for that, which is passing the placement exam. It's also not clear in a lot of systems which courses are going to transfer. 
So for example, some systems might have some sort of guideline, some sort of online tool in which a student should be able to check their class at the community college and see what its equivalent is at the four-year institution or even just see if the four-year institution accepts that credit. And first of all, maybe that that credit might not be accepted. Those online tools might be inaccurate. And also a lot of students just don't even realize that that's something that they should be doing, you know? You, you, you have a piece on our website on the, on the Brown Center chalkboard on the, on the blog of the Brown Center called Increasing Community College Student Transfer Rates. Is that what we're talking about here? Is transfer rates trying to get that higher to make it easier? Yes. What are some of the other ideas for for trying to improve that transfer rate? Right. So those state policies that are the subject of that blog post, there hasn't been tons of research on them, but they, the research that there that has been done suggests that they're not particularly effective. Um, maybe for some of the reasons that I mentioned in that blog post, maybe they don't address the core structural problems with community college transfer pathways. But so some other ideas are to, if you believe that the problem is um, this sort of too many choices getting lost in in the maze of the community college, then an obvious solution is simplify that maze, you know, give students very clear pathways from their starting point at the community college to the four-year institution. So, for example, Arizona State has worked on that uh, with their surrounding community college districts, one of which is uh, the Maricopa Community College District. Descriptively, their institutional data suggests that their transfer rates have gone up as they have made available these very clear, structured pathways for students. But uh, I don't know of any formal evaluation of that policy or or similar things going on in other um, institutions around the states. Okay. I've done a few podcast episodes on the topic topics related to higher education. I keep hearing Arizona State come up. They're, they seem to be doing a lot of innovative things. And now, John Hudak's take on what's happening in Congress. After the break, we'll rejoin the discussion about community colleges, including President Obama's proposal to make it free. With Congress in recess, it doesn't mean that nothing is going on on Capitol Hill. In fact, there's a lot of the nation's attention focused on who is voting in what direction on the Iran deal, particularly among Democrats. The president and White House staff are working eagerly to get as many Democrats to stay on board to support the deal as possible to avoid its defeat in in the House and in the Senate. Last week, Chuck Schumer announced that he would not be supporting the deal, but he also announced that he would not be encouraging his colleagues to join him in in voting against it. Other senators have come forward, including Montana Senator John Tester, who's seen as one of the key votes on this deal. And as each senator comes forward announcing their intentions, it looks clearer with each passing day that the Iran deal will likely be sustained by the Congress. Beyond what is happening with the Iran deal, there are a few other factors that are going to be of focus to Congress when they come back from recess. And two of them have to do with congressional investigations. One will certainly be an investigation into a chemical spill in Colorado, which has dumped poisonous chemicals into a river there. The House Republicans are irate with this situation, as is the congressional delegation from Colorado, blaming not just the EPA, but the EPA administrator in particular for a slow response to this disaster. In addition, 
We have every expectation that there will be congressional hearings into the covert videotapes of Planned Parenthood indicating that they are uh, misusing the materials that they have uh, in some of their facilities. Congressional Republicans see these two investigations as election year opportunities and as a means of motivating their base. And it's not uncommon for Congress to use their oversight power to score political points. And that's what's likely coming in the months ahead when Congress comes back to Washington to get to work. I'm John Hudak, and that's what's happening in Congress. Thank you, John. I'm back with Brown Center fellow Adela Solis. What do you make of President Obama's proposal to make community college free? I believe he proposed that in his most recent State of the Union address. I think college affordability is extremely important, but I think that without addressing the persistence issue, we're only sort of solving part of the problem. And if the goal is not just to get more students who have some college, but to get students, more students who have, or more people who have an actual credential, um, then there has to be equal attention focused on persistence um, as well as just enrollment. What do you mean by persistence issue again? I mean that if you lower the cost of community college, then of course more students are going to enroll. But just sort of this lowering the cost, there's no reason to believe that that's going to be an incentive for students to continue to enroll the next semester. Yes, it remains low, but I don't know. There's no mechanism. They don't sort of – it doesn't set up any goal for them. And another Brookings scholar who focuses on education policy said it's it's a bad idea to make it free for everyone. You should at least means test it, right? Uh, I think that would probably accrue to the benefit of the lower-income students who – have perhaps limited choices in their higher education. Right. So to avoid just the blanket subsidy that might help middle class students as well as lower income students. Now, you're also doing research on for-profit colleges and and the, the relationship that has with community college enrollment. Can you talk about what that particular aspect of your interest is? And is there competition between the for-profits and the community colleges? Right. So so that interest sort of grew out of um, I was working with uh, one of my advisors at, at Harvard Grad School of Education named David Deming, who does a lot of work on the for-profit colleges. And, um, and just to say, we're talking about like University of Phoenix and yes. those kinds of places. Okay. Yes. Those are sort of the, the big for-profit chains that are traded publicly are the ones that everybody knows about. But there are tons of others, both degree-granting and um, non-degree-granting sort of little one-off institutions all over the place um, and smaller chains, smaller local chains. All right. So back to David Deming. So anyway, uh, out of working with him, learning about the for-profits, but still, you know, I've always been a community college person. That's always been my main interest. Uh, so of course, the community colleges and the for-profits are going to have some relationships. So my questions um, related to for-profits are mostly all about the relationship between for-profits and community colleges. Okay. Would it be a bad thing if they were in competition? I mean, and, and also we should acknowledge that there's been a lot of news stories lately about how some of the for-profits are maybe in financial trouble. Some of them are closing their doors. Um, and there's some other issues uh, in terms of the percentage of federal financial aid they get. Right. There's a lot of issues around that. So would it be such a bad thing if they were just in competition for students? Right. So, I mean, from an institutional perspective, there is a lot of potential for competition, I think, to be a beneficial thing. 
if uh, the community colleges um, are losing students to the for-profits, then um, that could encourage them to increase their efficiency and increase their quality. There are a couple of reasons why that might not be happening. For one thing, community colleges only receive a small portion of their revenue from um, student tuition dollars. So it's not clear that just kind of losing a few of their students would be enough of a financial strain on them to encourage them to change their policies. Nobody has really shown this that I know of, but um, the general feeling is that over the decade uh, from the sample that I'm using in my research, which is 2001 to 2012, um, that community colleges were experiencing capacity constraints. So for some of the community colleges that might have been losing students to the for-profits, it might have just been a relief to them to lose those students, in which case, again, they wouldn't have had any uh, reason to change their ways because of the loss of those students. I will just, another anecdote, on Route 7 in Northern Virginia, out in Loudoun County, Northern Virginia Community College is building new buildings all the time. I don't think they're worried about capacity. I don't think they're worried about students. I think they're doing really good. And I think Northern Virginia Community College has a really good reputation. Adela, I know you're defending your dissertation at the beginning of October. Best of luck with that. But what else do we have to look forward to from you as a brand new researcher in the Brown Center in the coming months and years? Um, well, I'm very interested in this transfer question. I think I and a couple of my colleagues are actually trying to evaluate that ASU program. So I hope that that works out. I'm still interested in pushing a little bit more on the effect of the state transfer and articulation policies on student outcomes. Um, I'm also interested in just more of these uh, institutional questions about community colleges, basically what we just spoke about. My dissertation sort of shows that there is evidence that um, the for-profits and community colleges are in competition. It does seem like the community colleges were losing students to the for-profits over my sample period. So one of the next questions that I want to answer is, did community colleges respond to that? Did they change? Did they start to develop different programs? Did they change their budgeting? And uh, were they affected by that competition? Well, thank you, Adela, for joining me today, and welcome to Brookings. Thank you very much. You can learn more about Adela Solis and her research on our website, brookings.edu, and visit the Brown Center on Education Policy at brookings.edu slash browncenter. My thanks to my audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, our artist, Jessica Pavone, and our online support team of Rebecca Weiser and Eric Abalahan. Also thanks to Podcast Movement and the Academy of Podcasters for naming the Brookings Cafeteria Best News and Politics Podcast in this year's awards. We're very honored for this recognition. And finally, happy birthday to my wife, Paula. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, and send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. 